Hey everyone, welcome to the Modern Patient Experience. I'm James Furbush, head of marketing for Q Squared, where we make it easy for patients to pay their bills. On this show, I interview executives from hospitals, health systems, and provider groups, physician leaders, and digital health pioneers. Our goal is to equip you with new ideas and tactical advice to give your patients the best clinical, financial, and operational experience you can. Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Patient Experience by Q Squared. I'm your host, James Furbush, and today I am pleased to welcome Kevin Holst, the Chief Revenue Officer from Groups Recover Together. Uh, very excited to have you on the show, Kevin. Uh, thanks for joining. Great, James. Uh, good to be with you today. So, you know, I want to start, you know, I think the notion of the patient experience, but as it relates to addiction recovery in America, I mean, that's such a, a huge topic with, you know, opioid rates and, and sort of the, the problem that we're, we're having in America. And so I'd love to, for you just to kind of talk to us today about, you know, groups are covered together, you know, how you guys are different from other addiction treatment organizations and, and sort of your role there. Sure. No, I'll be happy to do it. And you're, you're right. You hit the nail on the head. Over the past 18 months, the, the opioid epidemic has become much worse through the global pandemic of COVID, right? Addiction is a disease of isolation and the, the pandemic has put everybody back into an isolated state by and large. You know, our role in that space is to help people that are addicted to opioids find treatment. We are Groups Recover Together is a, an opioid uh, addiction treatment provider. We are uh, licensed as an OBOT, which is an office-based treatment provider that allows us to deliver in an outpatient model, uh, a highly differentiated version, a uh, highly differentiated clinical model of medication-assisted treatment. And what that means is we, we use a combination of prescription medication to stabilize our members in treatment. As we, as we provide what is not often uh, provided in MAT as it's delivered traditionally throughout, throughout the country, a very uh, significant focus on building a supportive community of peers around our members through the context of weekly group therapy and a variety of support services that help our members navigate through snapping their lives back together. So if you think about you know, the, 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 the isolation of it. Oftentimes when our members come to us, you know, they are, you know, convinced that it is just them and they walk into a room full of peers that have, are in variety of, a variety of milestones along their addiction or the recovery journey. Once they join that group of peers, they, you know, very quickly start to a community through which they can be accountable, they are accountable to. The way we get our members to engage in that model of treatment is through seven-day prescriptions where they must come in and attend a weekly group therapy to pick up their prescription to the next seven days of, of medication. 
And through that, we offer individual counseling and individual navigation services that help them do things like, you know, navigate Medicaid to get enrolled into, uh, into health coverage, navigate social services to help get their children's and families back together, navigate, you know, something as simple, although not often as simple as we like it, navigate the DMV to get their license back so they can drive to their job and begin to, you know, piece back together with their lives. And what we've come to find is those things, you know, that aren't necessarily focused on, you know, a one-on-one physician office visit or uh, a definitive test that's sent to a laboratory, which often pay well in the context of fee schedules through, through healthcare insurers, are the things that drive the most value and are the most sticky for our members that helps them gain traction and helps them achieve, achieve long-term recovery. Nice. Yeah, that's incredible. So how, how do your patients come to you guys? Is it references from the hospitals and health systems or, or like, I'm just very curious how, how you sort of reach out to, to sort of help this, this patient population. Sure. You know, it's a, it's a tricky proposition in terms of being relevant to folks that are often isolated and often in the midst of an addiction, which makes it very difficult to, to reach there. In our, in our existing and more mature markets, the flywheel of our members referring others to us that are in need of, is a big part of how we, how we gain access to, to growing our members and census. For our expansion markets that we're new to, we don't have a ton of awareness and we don't have a ton of census to generate that, those member referrals. We do a variety of, of paid acquisition strategies through, you know, paid search on Google, through social channels like Facebook, Instagram, and, you know, paid recovery influencers, where there's a, you know, a significant number of folks that have generated audiences you know, based on telling their recovery story and telling their addiction story. And through those channels, we, we generate demand. And the first touch through those channels is generally into a 24 hour, 24 seven crisis line that is staffed by licensed addiction count. And, you know, that's the first touch point. On the other side of that is the is the awareness that we're building and the, the relationships that we're building with community stakeholders. If you think about, you know, generally where population of folks that are wrestling with opioid use disorder generally engage, um, in a community, it's the emergency department, usually in the context of some, you know, emergent care, like, like, like an overdose it's through local law enforcement and first responders that uh, see these, these, these members, you know, in, in, in a variety of different situations, often, you know, associated with, with emergency care, criminal justice. You know, we do a lot of work with uh, county sheriffs and county jails to, to catch members that are uh, being released from a jail sentence that have been incarcerated due to their, their, their opioid addiction, that population is, is significant. And a population of 
members or patients, we refer to our patients as uh, that is at high risk because oftentimes what happens is they are, they are arrested in the context of an active addiction and they essentially are incarcerated for some period of time through which they are you know, forced into, into abstinence and they become you know, naive to the opioids that they're used to. And when they're released, oftentimes that's when they are at the most risk for uh, an overdose event because their body is, has lost the, the tolerance that has been built up over their addiction. And they are much more likely to wind up in, you know, either, you know, in the emergency room and, and to be stabilized or, you know, oftentimes they're, you know, they're dying in the context of their drug use. You know, I'm curious. So, I mean, it's, it's a very different patient experience that in some ways, because it sounds like, you know, trust is a big part of that experience for you guys being able to build that with people who walk through the doors. And then once they're no longer maybe coming in, but then afterwards, right, helping them rebuild their lives so that you don't see them again. Can you, you know, I'd love to just, you know, do you at a high level, you know, can you talk about sort of that sort of journey in terms of, you know, how you're orchestrating sort of building that trust and, and what you guys are doing differently in order to sort of facilitate that patient experience that sure. to basically enable them to have success, right? To, to be into recovery and, and really put their lives back together. Yeah, I mean, I think the right place to start is to talk about stigma, right? Most of, most of the folks that are, you know, struggling with opioid use disorder have been in addiction for some, you know, a significant period of time. In our membership, it's, you know, somewhere in the order of 11 years, which is mind blowing to think about. And through that process, they've been stigmatized by the U.S. healthcare system. They've been stigmatized by physicians who see them as drugs. Oftentimes, you know, through the distrust of the fact that they've gotten to their active addiction through a legal script from a provider, right? Starts off, you know, 10 years ago with a sports industry that results in a legal script to, you know, Oxycontin that, you know, starts them on through an addiction cycle. So there's a lot of distrust there on both sides. Providers see them as drug seekers. The, the patients see the providers as drug pushers and you know, have been referred to as addicts and users and as such. One of the things that we focus on as a, as an organization is, is, is using the benefit of the doubt, uh, benefit of doubt with these members to treat them like people. Cause oftentimes, you know, these folks have not been. And there's a ton of value at, uh, in that, in that it's, it's the first step in starting to build trust. You know, most of our members come to us, you know, you know, feeling as though we are going to stigmatize them because we are a medical provider and it takes time, sometimes longer than others. It takes time to build that trust back to the point where they believe, you know, they, they see and learn that they can be inspired by, uh, a counselor or learn from, uh, a prescribing physician. Or, you know, 
figure out pieces of their lives from a patient navigator that helps them, you know, navigate, you know, barriers to long-term recovery, like navigating social services. Once you start to do those things, you start to build that trust. And that's an, that's an important component of just getting the member to engage in their care. And once that starts to happen, then and only then can you start to drive the other pieces of the patient experience that are, that are vital, including, you know, there's a ton of clinical complexity here in this cohort, including getting them back on a regimen in a relationship with a primary care provider, getting back to the dentist to, you know, to, you know, to, to get that process started. Managing through specialty care for a variety of things that this cohort is often comorbid with. And that's all part of building out uh, a superlative patient experience. As you, you know, it's no surprise, as you start to feel better physically, and that happens relatively quickly with this patient population, it winds up, you know, as it turns out, you know, even just a month of, you know, stopping the drug abuse that they've been engaging with for that period of time. They look and feel differently, um, and it's amazing transformation to be able to watch across, you know, across our membership. But once that starts to happen, then they really start to engage in their care. And not only are they helping themselves kind of in a stepwise approach, achieve, uh, recovery, they're also a model to the folks that are new to the process. So all of our groups, you know, our group therapy sessions, same groups of people same time, uh, day and time every week, same counselor that our, our, our members are coming into historically face-to-face -face in one of our, you know, bespoke uh, clinics that we've built and we, you know, we've built out approximately 85 clinics across the country, but they start to, you know, engage in that group treatment model and begin to, you know, be build relationships and build accountability with that, uh, with that, you know, group of peers on a week, week to week basis. But in that context, they're open groups. So the, the mature members that are further along in their recovery are great, you know, role models and proof points to the folks that are walking in the door for the first time. And for the, you know, folks that are more tenured in their recovery, in their recovery, it reminds them what it what it looked and felt like when they first started their recovery journey. And that's a very powerful component, uh, of the overall model. Uh, how, how has the last 18 months been with, I mean, I imagine face-to-face in-person group meetings have been an enormous challenge for you and your members in the last 18 months. I mean, what have you guys done to, to adapt to that on behalf of your, your patients? Sure. As a, in a move to keep, you know, both our, our members and our staff safe in, you know, March of 2019 or I'm sorry, March of 2020, we essentially shifted to a, a hundred percent virtual model very quickly. We have had some experience a couple of years before during some of the California wildfires had to migrate to a virtual model as, uh, you know, a lot of our members were displaced in Redding and Chico in Northern California, and we had to quickly, you know, lift and shift onto a virtual platform. So we had that experience in March of 2020, we did so for the entirety, uh, of our, of our member base, which was a, a Herculean effort that 
quite frankly, I don't remember much. There were, there were a lot of 18 hour days back then, as you can imagine. That's, that's uh, probably all. We did, we did, we did so successfully and we did so in a way that we tried to continue to emulate the member experience, you know, through, you know, a, a platform like this, you know, through a zoom like platform and leveraging, leveraging our EMR in a way that, and our calls that, that tried to closely as possible match the, the in-person experience that our members were used to. At that point, point in our growth, we were, we were probably about, you know, a little over a quarter, probably 30% of our census today that we are today, you know, we moved from say, call it 2,500 members that we're seeing on a weekly basis to, you know, just last month, we pierced the 8,000, uh, member mark. And we've done so predominantly with this virtual model. We, we've continued to open physical locations, you know, in, in March of 2020, we were probably, you know, 50, uh, locations We're 83 now, most of which support our staff, but do not, are not supporting face-to-face care delivery at this point. We, we had planned to go back this month, but we, you know, with the progress of, of community transmission of the Delta, it's become really difficult to do. And we've, we've, we've delayed that till such time that we have good visibility into getting our members back into, into care, in-person care safely. But, you know, the, the things that we think about from a, a member perspective, we are you know, we're an organization that is, that is very focused on driving outcomes, you know, both from the reduction of emergent care for our members, the increase in primary care utilization, you know, typical HEDIS measures of making sure that our members are, you know, getting into treatment quickly from the time that they engage with us to the time that they're actually being seen. All those things are a big focus for us. Making sure that we had parity when we shifted to do a virtual model was critical to our success, you know, the contracts that we sign with payers are, are tied to the success of the metrics that I just, just listed. So, uh, and we've been able to, we've been able to do so in a virtual model to date. So re- reimbursement's not tied to whether it's physically in person or digitally, but, but more outcome based. That's correct. I mean, you know, we're, you know, in some states that is by virtue of the fact that, you know, executive orders have made that true. In other cases, you know, we're, we're contract with payers in a way that, that allows us to support virtual and will moving forward. You know, it's interesting. We're, we're trying to watch the regulatory and, you know, landscape as closely as possible to see how this distills. And I think like most organizations, we're convinced that it'll be some type of hybrid model moving forward. I don't know that uh, anyone thinks that we'll be able to put that genie back in the bottle. What's been the, have you guys been able to look at like attrition rates or, or how you're sort of your members showing up to, to, to groups and treatment, like in person versus digital. I'm, I'm curious if you guys have been able to look at that and, and how does that compare from, from one to the other? Sure. There, there's three, three, you know, sentinel metrics that we focus on from an outcomes perspective that are related. I mean. There's other stuff with regard to, you know, utilization and cost reduction that we focus on, but the three big ones in terms of, you know, early tells of, of, of success of our program are, 
attendance to our weekly group, which has actually improved in the remote model because we've, you know, stripped away one of the barriers of social determinant barriers, which is transportation, right? It's easier for somebody to get to their weekly group treatment through, you know, through the, our remote and our, our virtual platform. The second is, is abstinence from illicit opioids. So we, we've continued to test our members with a point of service you were in drugs, which is the way we've done it in during in-person, in-person care as well. And while we have lost a bit of fidelity in the sample and you know, I'm sure there are, there are ways that our members have figured out how to, you know, pass a urine drug screen when it's, when it's delivered remotely like this. The reality of it is we see our members once a week and our members are being seen in the context of a group treatment model. And there is nobody better than, you know, calling somebody out from an accountability perspective than up here. Yeah. Right. Additionally, you know, the, the counselor engaging with these members on a week over week basis solves for that to a certain extent. But, you know, we think, you know, we think it's, it's, it will continue to be a vital, vital piece of the way we deliver care and being a little bit more rigorous around that as we get back in in-person care is, is important. The other piece uh, that we track is retention and treatment in six months. We measure, you know, from the first day of treatment through six months, the percentage of folks that remain as an early, you know, early indicator for success of long-term treatment and where you start to bend the cost curve of keeping members in care is an important component. And with groups that average sits around 70, 72% of members retained in treatment at month six in comparison to medication only, uh, treatment models, which doesn't deliver effective and rigorous counseling services, uh, and doesn't deliver wraparound services like care navigation. Often those models show retention in treatment somewhere around 25 to 30%. So oftentimes we're two to three X the the traditional model of, you know, the industry in terms of retention and treatment. And we see that as a, you know, as a, as a big, uh, big piece of our clinical model, right? The group therapy model that, you know, creates the supportive network and the work that we do to knock down the long-term bar you know, the barriers to long-term recovery, which are often social determinants like transportation and, and housing and food security. As well as, you know, knocking down and, and cleaning up, you know, the, the, the comorbidities, the, the physical health of a member and, and helping them feel better generally. Yeah. It's interesting. So the, when, you know, do your patients always have a relationship with you guys or, or what sort of that handoff led? you know, you can say, or they, they graduate from there, graduate. Yeah. Or like, feel like they could yeah. kind of go back to the world's, a, a, a better, healthier person. Sure. It, it varies considerably, James. Like if you, if you think about it, you know, everybody's addiction experience 
varies considerably. You know, for, you know, for the, you know, a member in their twenties that got to their addiction through a sports industry and, you know, developed a pill problem, you know, there's no, there's no reason why you have to have that person on medication for the rest of their lives. For the member that has, you know, lived through a 30 year addiction to, you know, to heroin, maybe all of our members, you engage in a shared decision-making model in terms of when they taper the medications, when they stop the medications and, you know, when they, when they believe they don't need to continue to engage with us in any, any way. The, the unique thing about our program, and I kind of alluded to it there earlier, is once they taper a hundred percent off the medication, they are open to continue coming to group therapy, weekly group therapy at no cost to them and at no cost to the health plan. You know, as, you know, as I mentioned before, really valuable in not only continuing the rigor in their own recovery journey, but also helping others uh, along in theirs. Well, and I, I would think too, the being able to go to group or staying in sort of the group therapy, it's also like that accountability model, right? If you still have that, you're probably less likely to maybe relapse if you still have that sort of group of peers that you can check in with right. and, and get support from and and are accountable to. That's right. That's right. So, you know, for you as a CRO, you know, what are the things that you are directly responsible? I mean, it probably sounds like you're doing a lot of stuff from making, you know, identifying patients and, and getting them into the program. But what are sort of the things that fall under your purview as the chief revenue officer related to the patient experience? A little bit of everything. Yeah. So not, not everything. There's a, you know, I have, I have a great, there's a great leadership team here that we share a variety of different di disciplines. My role is, is ownership of the growth organization. So that includes a couple of different things. It includes direct member marketing channels that I mentioned, like the, the paid acquisition channels that we leverage, you know, traditional media that includes, you know, everything from billboards to connected TV to, you know, rendered, you know, overnight TV spots to you know, building out and enabling a team that is on the ground, talking to community stakeholders and all the, you know, the white papers and trifold brochures and all the stuff that we need to be able to describe who we are, what we do and the differentiation of our model in comparison to, to others. It also includes the, you know, the payer partner partnerships that, you know, post-contract, my team is responsible for standing up the the payer contracts to make sure that we are set up properly in the payer systems that, that we are, you know, ready to be able to drop claims on behalf of our, our members once we're alive and credentialed and the ongoing reconciliation of at-risk agreements that we have with a variety of different payers. So justifying the, you know, the cost and the impact that we're making on uh, total cost of care for the membership by plan. Yeah. How, you know, I'm kind of curious. So those discussions with payers, what are those like, you know, I would assume they would have a vested interest in keeping people within their network out of the emergency room, for example, or utilizing hospitals and things like that. So how do those 
negotiations or, or deals work with with payers? Yeah, I mean, generally, you know, we are we're taking at risk in a bundled payment, you know, which is groundbreaking when you think about you know me- Medicaid is sixty percent of our overall overall payer banks. And we've done some really good work with some innovative, you know, Medicaid payers across the country. And, you know, a lot of that discussion is around, um, you know, how we can impact the overall cost of this patient population, which by and large, I mentioned before, they've, you know, they've been divorced of the American healthcare system, like generally the payers have a really difficult time of, you know, even engaging with them in to be able to direct them towards you know lower cost of care or appropriate level of care one of the things that we've we do extremely well is we can engage and connect with folks that are living with addiction you know through the channels that i mentioned but once we you know once we get them in treatment we are much more successful in bending the curve in terms of overall cost for this patient population which is generally the value that we represent to the payer. And on an ongoing basis, quarterly, we are meeting with our payer partners to go through growth and census, to go through the impact that we're having on costs through evalu- you know, through evaluation of the metrics that we are taking risk on, as well as, you know, more and more getting in discussions around how we're bending the curve on total cost of care. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And, and so, um. You know, you guys have had, obviously, it sounds like incredible growth this year and and probably due in no small part to, you know, COVID and the isolation and, and certain things like that. But as you're looking ahead, do you, what are your sort of priorities and initiatives for, for the patient experience at, at groups, you know, heading into to 2022? Do you have stuff that's sort of on the roadmap for you guys that you're looking to tackle? Yeah, we do. I mean, we are, you know, you've, you, if you've hit us. At a really good moment in time, as I mentioned before, we staff at a twenty-four-seven crisis line, which is you know where most of our engagement starts. That team just last a week migrated onto our Salesforce platform, which will give us a ton of ability to maintain relevance and connection with members in various places of their recovery. Not only once they are in care with us, but oftentimes. The first call isn't the call that gets the, you know, prospective member in the, you know, it's, it's often, you know, folks are calling because they're in distress or they need, you know, immediate attention because they're in active withdrawal. If we can grab them, then great. But oftentimes it's a, you know, it's an ongoing nurture campaign to be relevant to this member population in that, you know, investing in that piece in the automated connection piece to our members and figuring out how to optimize that over the next coming quarters is a big uh, part of our overall strategy. As I mentioned before, we do some work with recovery influencers. Uh, Jessica Kent, if you haven't seen her online, you know, well-known voice in the recovery community and has told her story you know, to the millions of followers that she has through TikTok and, you know, YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. But she has agreed to 
represent groups because she believes, you know, in our model, in our harm reduction model and the way that we engage with our patient population. You know, we're looking to grow those type of engagements uh, with our, with our members and, you know, quite frankly, try to meet them where they are. You know, you know, one of the other channels that we, we engage in is, is more kind of grassroots and it's from, it's from our, you know, from the beginning days of groups in New Hampshire, it's flyering, you know, posting up pull tab flyers in places where folks that are struggling with addiction congregate. And that's often, you know, retail establishments that are open 24 seven laundromats, you know, convenience stores, McDonald's, you know, fast food bathrooms, gas station bathrooms, you know, where folks generally are using. And that kind of grassroots stuff, uh, has kind of fallen off through COVID for all the, you know, all the reasons you, you, you can, you can imagine, of uh, just being safe and getting out to the community. We're investing heavily as an organization in a program called everybody flyers. So everybody, you know, from my CEO all the way down to the newest employee has a responsibility for generating awareness in their community. And that's another piece, you know, of, of how how we continue to build relevance to this uh, patient population over time. Yeah. It's so fascinating to think about how to meet patients where they are, you know, cause they even think about too, like not everyone has access to technology, right? So even thinking about like, can patients even do like virtual calls and some might not be able to, right? I mean, that's probably a, a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. Not everyone. Yeah, we, we were, that was a big worry back in March of 2020 when, you know, a lot of the rural communities where we focus on high need, low access to quality care, don't have good bandwidth. You know, often these folks are, you know, have lost everything, including income and families, et cetera. You know, don't have, don't have a ample bandwidth or a cell phone or a smartphone to be able to dial in. We found that, you know, that, that percentage was smaller than we thought it might be, yeah. but there's a variety of different, you know, programs that are out there to help folks, you know, get access to a phone, get access to, uh, to bandwidth, but even if it's going, you know, a place where they can sit in their car outside a public library and be able to dial in. That's what's they you hear know, a lot of, a lot of innovative ways to be able to solve for that. For our justice involved pop population, especially in the state of Maine. We're actually buying burner phones, you know, short-term, uh, temporary phones. So at least at release, the first phone call that, that, that they can make is to groups to make sure they know how to get to their first group, uh, counseling appointment. So we've, we've tried to look at it in a variety of different innovative ways that we can scale, but it wasn't as big as a problem as we had, we had feared it might be. Yeah. I mean, at, at this point, I think so many people. It's like almost, I would think most people have some sort of smartphone or, or some kind of phone at the, at the very least at, at this point. Do you have, I'm curious, you know, cause one of the, the challenges I think, right. in talking about the patient experiences in some ways, it's like, we talk about it monolithically, right. Do you guys have buckets that you place patients in and, and think about like, I mean, you know you probably have a million different personas and, and things like that, but you sort of at a high level, 
Are there buckets that you think about with, with the patients or have you done any of that sort of segmentation work? I'm curious. Sure. Look, you know, the clinical model has a variety of different sites. You know, there's a stabilization phase, there's a maintenance phase, yeah. you know, you know, just to consider, you know, how we look at our patient population that is a treatment. There's also, you know, kind of a, you know, a bucketed approach to thinking about, you know, where patients are in finding recovery. Yeah. You know, are they, are they in a position where they think they have a problem and, you know, need help? Are they convinced that they do and they're actively searching for the right treatment model for, for themselves? We look at it, you know, from that perspective, a lot of, uh, a lot of the time, you know, but you know, that, and we get a lot of feedback from our members that they're, they're the ones that are most connected to the overall worldview of folks that have wrestled with addiction. And we try to try to make sure that uh, a big input to the way we look at engaging with patients over time. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that makes sense. Thinking about kind of their, their stage of the, their recovery journey more than, than sort of the actual person themselves. How do you, you know, for you as a leader, you know, at, at groups to cover, but you know, healthcare generally, you know, where do you go to find, um, inspiration? You know, or like, are there places that you go to look at that, uh, you know, ideas to steal or, or companies that are doing stuff that, you know, you're like, I want to stash that away and, and maybe bring that to, to groups at all. I'm curious where you go to find ideas and, and, uh, related to the patient experience. Sure. I look, I, I think the biggest source of inspiration for all of us here, um, are the members that we serve and the journey that they've had, the, the, the amount of, of barrier and hardship and, you know, grief that a lot of our members have uh, lived through is significant. And that's a big source of inspiration, you know, followed shortly by, you know, the team that we have in the field, our, you know, our counselors, the addiction counselors that have, that see our patients on a weekly basis and become, you know, kind of the inspiration for our members are another great source. You know, a lot of our, you know, a lot of our counselors have connection, you know, to, to addiction, either through their own recovery or the recovery of close family and friends, all of them have lost patients. And we try to honor that as best we can, because they are, you know, they're the rock stars within the context of our organizations. They're the ones that are making a difference and making the impact of our of the lives of the, of the members who trust us in their, in their recovery journey. You know, barring that, you know, there's a num number of, you know, marketing professionals and, you know, that, that we've engaged with to try to learn, you know, things that they've found successful, but, you know, not non-competitive organizations that are, you know, that are in healthcare that we see as as innovators with regard to how to effectively engage patients in their treatment. Nice. Right, well, Kevin, thank you for making the time to, to talk to us about groups and, and your work. I mean, it's an inspiration. It's really important. The, the work that you guys are doing, impacting the lives that you are. And so thank you for, for sharing and, and, uh, appreciate you coming on today to, to talk us, uh, through some of this stuff. So thank you. Sure. Pleasure being here, James. I hope you got enough to be uh, uh, relevant and 
Uh, good seeing you again. Yeah, it's awesome. All right. Take care, Kevin. See you now.